capital punishment in Arizona, although largely void of the intense debates of the past, still maintains two sides. Two sides that are rooted in justice, equity, emotion, and morality. The public policy debate reappears each time an inmate is scheduled for execution. Where you fall on the spectrum of support for capital punishment may depend on political ideology or perceptions of effectiveness. In Arizona, there are currently 111 people on death row, 108 men and three women. And Arizona has the eighth most prisoners under a sentence of death in the United States. I'm Tony Vidali, Deputy Director of the Arizona Criminal Justice Commission. And on this episode of Criminal Justice Spotlight, Molly Edwards, the Criminal Justice Commission's Public Information Officer, and I talk with Rick Unclesbay, a retired Pima County prosecutor. Rick authored a book titled Arbitrary Death, A Prosecutor's Perspective on the Death Penalty, and has a unique perspective of Arizona's experience with capital punishment. Next up in the spotlight, we shine a light on capital punishment. Today on ACJC's Criminal Justice Spotlight, we are talking with author and former Pima County prosecutor Rick Unclesbay. Over a career spanning four decades, Unclesbay has tried over 100 murder cases before juries that ended with 16 men and women receiving the death sentence. He has supervised the Pima County Violent Crimes Unit, has been the chief of the criminal division, and directed the office's unit looking at potential wrongful convictions. He has tried every type of criminal case, including many high-profile murders. He has also authored the book, Arbitrary Death, that depicts some of the most horrific murders in Tucson, and includes Uncles Bay's prosecution of those cases and how the death penalty was applied. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. Nice Welcome, Rick. Yeah, I'm really, really uh, appreciate you coming in and, and spending some time with us. Hopefully, for the time we have together, educating us a little bit on capital punishment, particularly in Arizona. Mm-hmm. I came across your book doing some education uh, for myself to understand better, not just capital punishment, but capital punishment in Arizona in particular. And came across your book and saw the title that it was a prosecutor's perspective which I, I, I really found interesting. And when I started to read your book, you, you wrote in there that, neither, that you were neither an abolitionist nor ardent supporter of capital punishment. And I thought to myself, uh, this is going to be this is going to be a cool book to read and, and really learn um, from this, this perspective. And, and if there's a support of capital punishment or a criticism of capital punishment, I'm going to find out what that is. You know, Antonia had me read the book. And so, you know, I really wanted to learn what prompted you to write the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd been a prosecutor since 1981 and began trying homicide cases. And by 10 years in, um, the office trusted me to to try capital cases. And I, I tried a lot of them over the period of time I was there. And it, I think what mainly prompted the writing of the book was when I saw how long the appeals were, for one, and then how many of those cases got reversed at some point in time, either by the Arizona Supreme Court, the Federal District Court, the Ninth Circuit, the U.S. Supreme Court. And what struck me was how victims continued to suffer all that time. So, you know, the average appeal time in in Arizona is, is somewhere around 20 years from time of sentence until execution. And 
there's so many hearings that took place during that period of time, and the victims would have to relive this. And then so often, the case would get reversed on some aspect of jury instructions or ineffective assistance of counsel, and the victims would have to go through that again. And, you know, after after doing a number of those cases, it struck me that this is a system that, one, we need to look at whether Arizona really wants to have it. But what was most important to me, I think, was writing this so that the layperson would get some idea of how the death penalty applies in Arizona. One of the, I think, primary points that you make in, in your book is that is the arbitrary nature of the death penalty. And in, in reading some Supreme Court cases related to capital punishment, certainly Furman v. Georgia is, is one case where the, the court said that we had to essentially, not the, not the lawyer's version, but the layperson's version, we had to <clears throat> suspend capital punishment because the application of it was arbitrary and capricious. And right. in fact, Potter Stewart, Justice Stewart said, quote, the death penalty is cruel and unusual the same way being struck by lightning is cruel and mm-hmm. unusual. So you look at today's death penalty in the process, you certainly can make a good argument that it's arbitrary. What's different between the Furman decision where it was arbitrary and us saying it's arbitrary today? Well, I, I mean, you're right. I mean, Furman was supposed to, well, the intent of Furman was to get rid of the arbitrariness and get rid of the discriminatory nature of, that the court saw in the application of the death penalty. And so states had to rewrite their their statutes. And the big question, of course, is did we succeed in the intent of Furman in making it less arbitrary? And although I don't address this specifically in the book, I do talk about it somewhat. And, and well, and the, the title of the book, I think, gives you my, my answer. And it, I think we're still we still have an arbitrary system. We still have a discriminatory system. I mean, I think we do a pretty good job in Arizona of being race neutral. But when you look at other states, particularly across the Deep South, the number of minorities on death row far exceeds non-minorities and far exceeds the, the population of minorities in those individual states. So I don't know that the goal of Furman was accomplished ever in terms of having the, the death penalty less discriminatory. The arbitrary nature of it, I think, is just inherent in the system. And, and as I ar- try to argue in the book, I mean, the, the arbitrariness starts with the prosecutor's selection of which cases are going to uh, be death penalty cases and which aren't. And that itself is a subjective rather than an objective decision. And then the application that the jury in Arizona now uses to a to decide who's going to get the death penalty or not, you know, different jurors end up in with different decisions. So again, it's it, it's still arbitrary in in my mind. After the Furman decision, you have about four years later where we have Greg v. Georgia that reinstates the death penalty as long as as states had some process to consider mitigating and aggravating factors. But did Greg v. Georgia establish anything more than that, meaning that juries were the appropriate one to do that or judges, that judges could sentence? Or did Greg v. Georgia just say, look, as long as you consider aggravating and mitigating circumstances, however you do that, states, capital punishment now is constitutional? Well, yeah, and, and that's what we ended up seeing after Greg was because for a while, 
in Arizona, for example, jurors were making those decisions after the death penalty statutes were rewritten in Arizona. But then we went to judge sentencing, and I don't recall what year it was, but Arizona and about six other states had judge-only sentencing. The judge would find the aggravation and mitigation. The judge would impose sentence. And then in 2002, on the Ring case out of Maricopa County, the U.S. Supreme Court said, wait a minute, no, that, that's not constitutional to have judges make this decision. It has to be jurors who make at least the decision on aggravation and mitigation if you're going to leave it up to a judge to impose sentencing. And so at that point, Arizona and other states had to rewrite their statutes once again, and we went to jury sentencing. So now the jury finds the aggravating and mitigating factors and then decides what sentence to impose. Right. So Greg didn't tell us you know, how you were supposed to carry out this decision, but importantly, as Furman said, you, you need to have this mechanism where defendants can show mitigating factors that would militate against the death penalty. Yeah. Clearly, you see the evolution of the process, though. The court's saying it's, it's arbitrary, you can't do it. And then, well, once you develop this process of aggravating and mitigating circumstances, then it's okay. And then you mentioned the Ring decision in 2002. What I struggled with a little bit with the Ring decision, and I know the courts, depending on the makeup of the courts, they may decide one way at one point in time and, and one way in, in another point in time. But I struggled a little bit with Ring and understanding before that, not, I don't remember the year, but before the Ring decision, you had Walton, mm -hmm. the um, yeah. Arizona, that said sort of th that judges determining whether the death penalty should be imposed did not violate right. the Sixth Amendment of guarantee of a trial by jury. But then you have Apprendi v. New Jersey exactly. that muddies things up further that says that a judge could not make findings that would increase the defendant's sentence beyond the maximum because it was comparable to an additional conviction. And then we have Ring. I was also yeah. was reading an article the other day after the Parkland sentencing trying to understand what was happening in Florida. And I had heard some commentary about they had tried to pass some things through the legislature to, instead of making the jury decision unanimous, that um, it could be, I think they started out with nine to three, and then it was 10 to two, and then they, they couldn't get that through the legislature. So they kept it with the, the unanimous decision. Ring didn't require the jury to pass the sentence though. Did, didn't it just require that... It's the jury that needed to establish the mitigating and, and aggravating circumstances because those were facts and the juries, the juries are the fact finders. Right. And, and you, you go back to Walton and Apprendi. I mean, a, after Walton, which was a case out of my office as well, I think it was, I forget now if it was 89 or 91, but I think it was 89. But after that case, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that, that judge sentence was okay. And we spent from... 89 up until 2002, thinking that we were doing things in a constitutional manner. Even after Apprendi, which I think was 2000, I think it was Sandra Day O'Connor wrote a concurring opinion or a, a separate opinion in, in Apprendi and said, what does this do to our decision in Walton? I mean, she had some hindsight looking there saying, wait a minute, we decided Walton back here. Now we're deciding Apprendi. I'm not sure Walton's good law anymore. All the rest of the justices said, 
you know, no, we're, we're good. And then two years later, they they brought about Ring. So, you know, th- this whole time we thought we were doing things correctly. But you're right. I mean, Ring just mandated that juries make that decision about aggravation mitigation. Judges could still make that sentencing decision. But the Arizona legislature decided when they rewrote the Arizona statutes to go ahead and have the entire decision being made by a jury. Speaking of that, what's your thoughts or your opinion on the judge hmm making a determination of what the sentence should be versus the jury. Because when we think about applying the death penalty, we say that, we use that phrase, the, it's supposed to be applied to the worst of the worst. I would think, I've never been in a court case involving a murder, but I would think that the one that I was involved in would be the worst thing that I ever experienced. And so it somewhat makes sense to me to, to have a judge who has the experience of hearing all these cases and and knowing what the proper procedure is to pass sentence versus juries who are, as you said earlier, are made up of all different kinds of people at different times and different paradigms in life. And the fact that juries make decisions about what the sentence should be, to me, makes sense that it's arbitrary. I would say, yeah, I would expect that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, sure. And after Ring, I mean, one of of my good friends was one of the prime movers behind Ring in seeking a decision that juries should make this decision. And a lot of the defense bar wasn't really happy afterwards with that for the very reason you're saying, and that is that judges, when they would make a decision about a, a sentencing issue, they had the experience of, well, I had these murder cases in the past month, the past year, in which they didn't get death a, a death sentence. And this one really isn't that much difference. The judges had the experience to weigh these factors against other cases and make a decision that was sort of in line with past precedent in, in terms of who is getting the death penalty. The jury cases that I've done, this is, as you said, this is the worst thing that that jury has ever heard. And it's not surprising that after Ring and after the Arizona legislature revamped our, our statutes, that the percentage of time that the prosecution was seeking death and the jury imposing death was much greater. It was a much greater percentage of those cases in which juries were imposing death than had been the case when judges were the ones making the decision by a lot. I was looking at some statistics at one point, and when prosecutors were seeking the death penalty in front of a judge, prosecutors were getting a death sentence somewhere between 17 and 20 percent of the time. When juries started making that decision, juries were imposing a death sentence almost 70 percent wow. of the time. Wow. It was a huge yeah. difference wow. for you the reasons that you said. I mean, it's just – it's the most awful thing this jury could, could ever hear, and they didn't have the experience of who got death in the past. And that's what Tony and I have talked about is I actually did sit on a, a, a jury where there was three deaths involved, and I was – I mean, it was obviously the most egregious case I had ever heard. And so that is absolutely one of the discussion items that Tony and I had talked about is it's, you know, for me being on a jury one time, it was the worst of the worst. Sure. So, you know, with that being said, let's kind of transition here. You know, in your career, prosecuted about 20 death penalty cases and seven on death row, seven had sentences reduced to life. And, you know, two have been executed of uh, the people that you've prosecuted. How do those numbers compare to, say, other prosecutors? Would you be considered to have an unusually large number of death penalty cases? Well, more than 
Most prosecutors, yeah. But my office historically, especially under the predecessor before Barbara Lawal, Steve Neely, we were much more actively involved in death penalty litigation. We were seeking death a lot more than we did in later years. And there were a number of reasons for that that we can get into if you want. But yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of death penalty cases. Most prosecutors don't stay in the office as long as as, as I did and don't handle as many murder cases as I ended up prosecuting over the years. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a larger number than what most prosecutors would, would have in their career, at least in Arizona. For, for those of us that don't spend a lot of time in the courtroom and don't have any relatives or colleagues that are prosecutors that, that have your experience, can you walk us through that decision-making process? You had mentioned the Barbara Lawal's predecessor being more aggressive in seeking death penalty cases. Why is that? And what is the process, the thought process that you go through in determining that one, you will seek death and one, you won't? Sure. And different elect officials have differing opinions about whether they wish to seek the death penalty or not. And, you know, you just look around Arizona and there are a number of counties' attorneys for a variety of reasons have decided not to seek death. The ones that haven't in Arizona have done so more on a cost basis than anything else because it costs their counties just a tremendous amount of money to seek that. But so different elected officials have differing opinions on that. But it's it's a decision that is made by humans, which starts me out on this whole idea of the arbitrariness of it because it can't be and never is an objective decision. That is that, you know, we've got one or two aggravating factors, so we're going to seek the death penalty in that case because we have these aggravating factors. I mean, you can really find aggravating factors in any murder case. I mean, you've, you've already mentioned most murders are horrific. There's There are aggravating factors that exist in Arizona that you can apply to almost any case, any murder case. So what we did in, in my office around 2000, 2001, we got away from individual prosecutors being allowed to make the decision on their own about whether they were going to seek the death penalty in a particular murder case. And we went to a panel. And so what we required the prosecutor to do, if they were thinking about seeking the death penalty, they had to appear in front of the panel. It included the, the county attorney, the chief deputy, the chief criminal deputy, senior attorneys who'd been involved in, in murder cases, and make your presentation. What, what justifies this as being a, a death penalty case? We would invite defense attorneys to submit information to us by way of a presentation or written information. What are the mitigating factors that you would like us to consider before we make this decision? And then it would be a group decision. And we would certainly, we'd talk to the law enforcement agency involved, we'd talk to the victims, but the final decision is the prosecutors. And so we would have a panel that would make the decision as to whether or not we should seek death in a particular case. And it would involve looking at the aggravating factors, looking at any mitigation that was provided to us, looking back at the case law in terms of the application of that aggravation to the case law that existed, and then we'd make a group decision on it. And of course, the elected official always got the final decision. But in the case of, of Barbara that we're talking about, I mean, she would agree with the panel almost in all cases and, and defer to their expertise. But you look at it in terms of not just how egregious the murder is, but the method in which the, the homicide was carried out. How many victims were there? What's the criminal background of the defendant? Do they have prior violent offenses that would make you more concerned about what's going to happen to them in the future or what kind of crimes they might commit in the future? And so you weigh all that 
and then come to this decision that, as I said, is a very subjective one rather than an objective one. Is that panel process, is that something that was or is unique to uh, Pima County at the time, or does that is that a normal approach in most prosecutors' offices? Because it sounds like a good a good yeah. process when you have more that there'd be more consistency in the decision making process, which sh- theoretically should begin to lower the arbitrary nature, at least part of the arbitrary nature of of capital cases. I, I know at one point Maricopa County started one. Whether they started theirs before ours or after, I, I, I don't recall. Some of the smaller counties, I think, deal with it. When they have fewer people in the office, fewer prosecutors in the office, they deal with it more informally rather than have a, a set panel. But, you know, we had a panel that was comprised of around 10 folks, including the elected and and her chiefs. Because yeah, there were many times when somebody would bring a case in, uh, a prosecutor would bring a case in and say, I, I think I want to seek the death penalty. And we would look at them and say, this is just not a death case. And Without that panel, that individual prosecutor might have filed a notice that led to the appointment of two lawyers, led to all sorts of, uh, of motion practice. So they had to get the approval of the panel to do that. And it really did reduce the overall number of cases in which we sought death. You know, it's kind of interesting. This is actually a burning question that I've had is, what is your relationship with the defense counsel on death penalty Mm. cases? Are they more intense, the relationship between you and the defense counsel? Are they more aggressive with you? Sure. No, good question. I mean, I can get... I laugh only because, I mean, I have a, a lot of friends in the defense bar, and sometimes we would be up against each other in a, in a capital case. And they are very intense when you're in there. I mean, the, the, the state's seeking the death penalty against this person who's represented by somebody you've known for a long time. I have had friends of mine start swearing at me in court angrily. Uh, only to come back later on and apologize and say, you know, I'm sorry, the heat at the moment sort of got to me. I have one close friend that we we tried a capital case twice against each other, and we go out to lunch all the time, and we never got crosswise uh, during trial. But, yeah, they can be very heated, and, I, you know, you your reaction sometime to what the opposite side is doing, you know, you're grumbling to yourself and, you know, that dirty so-and-so, why are they doing this? But at the end of the day, I, I'm re- I really can say that the friendship that existed beforehand or that may develop afterwards sort of overcomes all the difficulty you had during the trial. But yeah, they, it can be really intense accusations flying. It's easy to fly off the handle at times. And, and so you have to go into these realizing that this is going to be very contentious. I need to be in control of my own actions and not fly after the handle. But um, yeah, it happens though. When I think about capital punishment, one of the things I think about just from a, a government perspective is cost, mm-hmm. money, time that it takes to prepare. Can you give us some insight on the differences in preparing for a capital case versus a non-capital case, both both say homicides, but but one um, you've now filed as a capital case. Is there a is there a big difference in time preparation? Um, yeah, because especially I, there is a, a huge difference in time preparation because after especially after the Arizona legislature revised the the law after ring in in two thousand and two, 
you had to be prepared not just for your case in chief, but you had to you had to prepare. And this is true for defense attorneys as well. You had to prepare for the aggravation phase, the penalty phase, and the trials last so much longer than a normal homicide. You know what we would call a normal homicide. So it, yeah, it, it takes months of of preparation to do these cases, and oftentimes the preparation is more getting ready for the sentencing phase than it is for the actual trial itself. It depends on the case, but oftentimes you find yourself working really hard on the sentencing phase before you ever even get a conviction. But now, I mean, since 2002, once you do the trial itself, the factual trial, you launch, if there's a conviction, you launch right into sentencing. So you have to be prepared. You had mentioned earlier the issue of race and in, in equities, particularly in some of our southern states, but not so much in, in Arizona. I had I looked at the most recent statistics, and I saw that the Department of Corrections reported about 56% white, 16% black, 20% Mexican-American, 3% Asian, and 4% Native American. Right. That m- probably closely mirrors what our population makeup is. And I know that's a standard that folks use when they're looking at the criminal justice system. They mirror who's in the system where and how that compares to our general population. So that seems to align fairly well. But what information you don't have is the socioeconomic status of individuals that are on death row. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the socioeconomic impact of those that find themselves on death row. And if it is a socioeconomic problem, is that really at the trial point or is it at the sentencing point where it seems like government has to provide a certain level of resources once we get to the sentencing point as far as the number of attorneys that that person has representing them, maybe that they have to be competent in, in a death penalty case as opposed, as opposed to just uh, some other felony case or a homicide or not. And so I'm, I'm wondering what your take is on the socioeconomic impact. Uh, well, so you, there was a, a lot of points you're making in there. Let me go back to the, the public defender issue first because I have a lot of friends that are public defenders. I, I, I have found over the years that the public defense agencies are oftentimes much better equipped to handle death penalty cases because mm-hmm. – They've done them, uh, and very few private attorneys get involved in that because of the cost. So I would argue that that public defenders are some of the best capital litigators that you can see, that, you, that you'd watch. As to the socioeconomic issue, our case law has developed over the years such that even if you are indigent, you're going to get your experts. You're going to get psychiatrists and psychologists and prison experts. And I mean, there there are cottage industries across the country that have developed where people do very little other than testify in capital cases as an expert, uh, either a mental health expert or you know folks that go back and put the defendant's life together from birth or even before. I mean, going into ancestors about uh, who this family is and where they came from and the problems they had and certainly the, the issues that the defendant had growing up. But to more directly answer your question, most of the people that you'll see on death row are folks that came from more impoverished backgrounds. Um, they were at the lower socio socioeconomic level. And I think there's a lot of societal issues for that, and this is not a sociology show, I know, but, you know, you get folks that 
came from families that were more disadvantaged. And these folks got into drugs early on or there were alcohol issues early on, mental health issues that were left untreated. And so we certainly see more of those kind of folks than we do in higher socioeconomic levels. Shifting gears here a little bit, do you think the political support for the death penalty is dependent more on public support than any other influence? That's a, that, that's a hard question. My inclination is to say it's not. And here's why. You know, there has been dwindling support over the last couple decades for the death penalty. I mean, we back in, gosh, the I think as, as the early 90s or so, we had somewhere around 80% of the people polled might support the death penalty. That's down now to just over 50%. And I think if if politicians were following public polling, we would have more states that were doing away with the death penalty. I really think it's the individual philosophy of elected officials that decides whether or not a state's going to have this. I mean, back in 2002 after Ring, we had conversations with state legislators at the time about, do you really want to inst- reinstitute these statutes or do you want to go with just a natural life sentence, which was in place for almost 10 years at that time? And the legislature decided to rewrite the death penalty law. So I think it's more a function of the individual decisions of, of those politicians rather than giving the population what they, uh, what they want. I think, too, from a political perspective, you don't hear very many discussions about capital punishment by politicians on, on one side of the issue or the other. Probably if they were asked, they would, they would have an opinion, but it's not an issue that they run on. I'm from Chicago originally, and so uh, Governor Ryan at the time mm-hmm. um, commuted the death sentences of 167 people. He had seen problems with the administration of the death penalty. And I think there was a guy that was on death row and, and they later he was exonerated from the crime. And, and I remember at the time, the governor saying in the news that if you, death penalty, if you can't get it right, then you can't do it. You, you can't have it. And we're not getting it right in Illinois. And so he commuted all these sentences. And I had I was listening to a podcast some time ago that he was on talking about um, that action that he took. And he was talking about the politics of capital punishment. And he was saying, even when he was running in uh, for offices in Illinois, that if you were a conservative, you didn't oppose capital punishment because you knew that you would be labeled soft on crime. So, you, so that was easy. You knew not to do that. Um, if you were a, a liberal, you generally uh, you generally oppose capital punishment you were seeking abolition he was saying though that it really never was an issue that he ran on or he really debated with anyone he said probably the most in-depth conversation or communication he ever had with the death penalty when he was running for office was the questionnaires that that mm-hmm. candidates would get where he would write that he supports the death penalty and why and that would really be it but he was not going to make that an issue. And I sort of feel today, I don't remember the last politician that talked about, about capital punishment one way or the other. Right. And I think as a, as a, a citizen, 
that's trying to determine, is this the right course of action or not? Sometimes it is the politician that we look to to provide that communication leadership to let us know what policymakers are thinking and why. And absent that, I, I think what we have, particularly here in, here in Arizona, stays here in Arizona until there's some sea change that's maybe driven by um, advocates for abolition or the other way, or victims of crime. Maybe as crime ticks up, and particularly violent crime, that people dig their heels in more to support of, of um, capital punishment. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, because it, it, you don't hear politicians talk about it much. And when I, I made reference to 2002, at that point, there was a lot of discussion about it. Should we reinstitute the statutes to comply with the U.S. Supreme Court decision? And at that point, politicians were saying, yes, we're, we're going to do this again. But other than when they're forced to to reckon with this issue, um, yeah, you don't you don't hear people talk about it much. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is that I, I don't think people understand the issue very well. And I, I was hoping to write it so that the layperson could look at it, read it, and say, oh, okay, that's, that's how our system kind of works here. Do I really want, you know, what's my feeling on it now? Well, and you talk about, you just mentioned that there is a decline in support for the death penalty. Do you see there maybe being a shift if violent crime increases again? I guess the, the straight answer is I don't know, but my my gut tells me that those kinds of issues, the the rise in crime, the uh, a reduction in a decrease in crime, go more to how people might vote for various <laughs> politicians rather than the death penalty. I, I don't think people think about it much. It's not you know when I've picked juries over the course of the years, and you do voir dire when you're questioning the jury before they're impaneled. It's surprising how many people, when, they, when they're asked about it, say, you know, I've just never really thought about it much. So I, I don't know that people give it a whole lot of thought until it affects them in some personal way. Do you think when we, when we do talk about capital punishment that it really becomes guided by political partisanship and, and really less about seeking justice and promoting public safety. Because I think when you start talking about seeking justice and promoting public safety, there are some real difficulties with justifying the effectiveness of capital punishment. And I don't mean that toward the individual victim families. Right. Because I think there's a good argument to make that the victim families would say, well, I'm not really interested in, in public safety or in retribution or or uh, deterrence, uh, what I want is a sense of justice for someone taking a loved one away. And so, so th there is, that, there is that, that perspective. But for those of us that are outside of that realm, we really should be thinking about the, the effectiveness of capital punishment. Does it do what people tell us that it does? Policymakers tell us that it does. Does it, if it doesn't deter and it isn't an effective tool for retribution, well, then, then what is the purpose? I, yeah. I understand the purpose to the family, but what about the purpose to society? And so do you think that debates today about capital punishment would really be rooted in just someone's politics rather than sort of the wonky technical reason on why the usefulness of capital punishment? Sure. And, and I think, you know, you get politicians that want to show that they're tough on crime or more likely to support 
the imposition of the death penalty as opposed to folks that say we need some sort of reform uh, in the system. Um, I, I think when you were asking that question, it, it took my mind back. There's a, um, a concurring opinion by Justice Scalia in a case called Kansas versus Marsh. Um, and the, the underlying issue is, is um, a, about a term called equipose. But if you look at Scalia's opinion, and Scalia was a death penalty supporter, he he talks a lot about just the issue you're you're bringing up, the value of the death penalty, but more importantly, how many of these cases get reversed. And Scalia wrote in his opinion in Marsh that fully 70 percent of death penalty cases get set back for one reason or another. So when you look at a system where 70 percent of the cases get and, – and not that they're reversed for new trials, but they may get sent back for resentencing or for other issues to be brought up um, and – you know, when you look at that kind of a system, how effective are we? Bluntly, are we efficient with the system? If you have that many cases that are getting reversed for one hearing or another or a new trial or a new sentencing trial, it's not a very efficient system. And then, you, as you said, you bring in the victims. The victims have to relive this every time there's a new hearing. It's a tough system to, to live in. To that point, I, I was reading a book about executions in 2010. It was called the Executioner's Toll. And the book looked at the 46 executions that happened in 2010. And it, it gave a summary of, um, of the crime and, and the trial and the appeals and then the, the last day and then the execution and, and the attendance of the victims and whether victim families said anything, whether they had any comment about, um, about the experience. And I don't remember the numbers of the 46 and, and how it broke out and on the comments made, but I, but I do remember very few of those individual family members who were willing to offer some comment or some thought said, it really wouldn't have mattered whether the person lived or died. It doesn't, that doesn't resolve my issue with my loved one is gone. So I really have no, no opinion. They could have gotten life in prison. It wouldn't have mattered. Very few of them said that. The majority said, at least that I remember because it was recurring, they would make com a comment like this, which was, I finally got justice, mm -hmm. except it took too long. Yeah. That would be the, the recurring theme. So I, I wonder, is the debate about capital punishment, or at least to, to supporters, to supporters of capital punishment, do you think there's a greater value in the execution of a murderer to the victim's family and that that is worth more to us, setting aside the cost and setting aside the time, but that end, that that's worth more to, to us because it, it's meaningful to the victim's family rather than you know, the deterrent effect or the public safety impact of, of, of deterring, uh, you know, people killing other people? Well, I, my experience is a little different than what you recount in the, in the book you're talking about. I have had very few victims tell me that they were satisfied with the death sentence or even the execution. I mean, I can remember one family saying that they, as you stated, that we finally got some justice uh, most of the people I talk to say, well, you know, my loved one is still gone. Nothing has changed. His death, you know, the, the perpetrator's death is meaningless to me because I still don't have justice because I don't have my loved one back. So I, I, I experienced more 
of that kind of a feeling where nothing is going to resolve. You know, whatever sentence you impose, whatever sentence is ultimately carried out, it doesn't change who I've had to become because of the loss of my loved one. In any of the cases that you dealt with where – death penalty cases that you dealt with where there was a guilty verdict and a death sentence imposed – was there ever an exoneration of the defendant or when there were issues that developed with the, with the sentence and it got kicked back or whatever happened to it? Was that, was that, the, was that the primary issue? Was, that the techni- was it a technical issue like that? Or, or did you ever have one that was an exoneration where we got it so wrong and this person, I mean, I think of um, Ray Crone. Mm-hmm. Got that one wrong. Right. Real that one was bad. Right. And and for even sitting on death row for a day, I can't imagine that for a guy who didn't do what what he was accused of and convicted of. Right. Did you ever have a case like that? For, fortunately, no. Um, although my office has had situations like that, not in capital cases, but uh, in capital cases, our our initial review is I, I would say very thorough. I mean, one of the things, you know, our issuing standard, like most prosecutors' offices, do we have evidence to prove this crime beyond a reasonable doubt? When we're looking at seeking the death penalty, it's really even more heightened than that. It's not just can we prove this crime beyond a reasonable doubt, but much more than that. Can we prove it beyond any doubt? Are we absolutely certain that this is the person who committed that crime and is deserving of the death penalty? So. We want to be very, very sure before we make the decision to seek death. Clearly, there are exonerations across the, the country in these cases. You brought up Ray Crone, and I'm familiar with his case. And, you know, he was tried twice for that, for that murder before DNA showed that he was not the perpetrator. And you look across the country, and clearly there have been mistakes made. My office had a famous case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it wasn't a, a murder case. It was a child molest, but we were convinced we had the right person, and the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed his conviction. And only later on, a few years later, when we did a DNA test, we found out we had the wrong person. So it's possible, and that's one of the things that I bring up in the book. If it's possible to convict a person who's innocent, do we want a system with it? takes that person's life only to find out later that they were innocent. I mentioned Scalia's opinion in Marsh. He brings that up and he actually gives some statistics about how rare it is. And I think, you know, if I recall correctly off the top of my head, Scalia cites to some other studies that say, well, it could be as high as 4%. He argues, well, I think it's only 1% or whatever his figures in Marsh are. And to me, it's beside the point because if there are any, you know, whatever the percentage is, is it worth having that system? The case with Justice Scalia, is that the case? I thought I read somewhere where he was making the point that if abolitionists found one person that was executed when they were innocent, they would be screaming it from the rooftops. Oh, absolutely. And, and it, that hasn't happened. And right. so he's tr- sort of making the point that having someone on death row and being put to death when they're innocent really isn't a problem. You're right. I mean, that is the case. And he and he, he goes through and debunks uh, many of the claims of innocence that have been executed. And he goes through them case by case. And it, that wasn't even the issue in the overall case, but he took this opportunity to go through and debunk those. But at the end, he still allows for the possibility, Thick. however slim it might be, that we could be executing innocence. Dovetailing on that, when I think of capital punishment— 
I think of three primary questions and, and whether it, from a policy perspective, it is, it is the right choice. And first is, is it constitutional? I think that's been answered. Second is a little bit tougher. Is it effective? And whether it's deterrence or retribution or what other the, whatever the, uh, the ultimate motivations of why we have the death penalty, that is, that's, I think still, uh, there's still a healthy debate there on uh, the effectiveness of the death penalty. The last one is, is it moral? And where are you at in life in your perspective on whether it is okay for the state to put someone to, to death? As a prosecutor who prosecuted cases, did you ever, did your mind ever go to a place where you thought that it was not the place of the state to put someone to death? Sort of that third question, that moral question, even if you could answer the first two in the affirmative, that's the third one that maybe you thought sometimes um, was was a no? Yeah, you know, that's a good question and a tough one because I, I don't really address this in the book. And what I've told, I, I, I do a lot of speaking about uh, about this issue to you know, classes and community groups and things like that. And that question comes up. And my default answer sort of to avoid <laughs> the, the whole issue is that, you know, as prosecutors, we follow the law. And the law that has been set in Arizona through our elected officials is that we have the death penalty. And it's my job as a prosecutor to follow the law to the best of my ability without getting caught up in in the moral issue. And I think, you know, but, but it's worth that discussion. Should the state be involved in that kind of decision? If I was pressed on it, like many things, the government doesn't always do things really well. And do you want to trust the government to do this? I'm not sure I do. Uh, and mainly because the possibility of us making a mistake is there. It exists. And I guess that's not really a direct answer to your question. Is it moral? I mean, that's for each individual to decide. But do I trust the government to get it right every time? I, that's, that's a much tougher question. I'm not sure that I do. You know, you were talking before about the process and the, the arbitrary nature that exists today where at one time the Supreme Court is trying to eliminate that by imposing these, these rules. Why do you think that the death penalty process, things like the jury decision on mitigating, aggravating circumstances, the appeals process, whether at the state or the federal level, so there's time for reviewing whether we got it right. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the inefficiencies of government, I think, I think we can get comfortable saying that government is very large and they are very inefficient at, at a lot of things. But we have this appeals process that is supposed to look at that at two different levels of government. Why do you think the process that we have doesn't really reduce or eliminate arbitrariness of capital punishment rather than if you didn't have those things? I could see where it'd be kind of like a free-for-all that you could not predict. It seems like these processes that have been mandated by the Supreme Court walk us closer to a process that is more understandable and less arbitrary, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. When you look at what I argue to be the arbitrary nature of it, it's throughout the, the system. So, for example, the one prosecutor may think this this horrible murder is a death penalty case. Another prosecutor may think, no, I don't think that's, that's that egregious and it doesn't meet those standards. I mean, I think we start the arbitrariness there. It goes with, with through the jury process. You get some jurors who, once they've heard the case, say, that's it. They're, he killed three, four people. 
in my mind, they're going to get the death penalty, where another juror is saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, it's really horrible, but I want to see what the reasons are, what what led this person to commit those kind of murders. I think that lends to the arbitrariness. What judge, what trial judge you get assigned? Trial judges try their best to make decisions based on the law and the facts. But I've, I've seen judges make decisions, whether they're pro or anti-death penalty, the outcome of a decision on a particular motion can be swayed by their personal opinions, and that makes it arbitrary. You go to the Ninth Circuit, and it depends on what panel you're in front of. Now, you can be in front of a panel that is more supportive of the death penalty or a panel that believes to, to the contrary, and the decision you get out of a particular panel at the Ninth Circuit may be different on the same case. It just depends on who you got assigned to, That's, and that makes it arbitrary. So I, I don't see any way— to make it less arbitrary and more objective. I, I, I mean, in my experience, I just don't mm. see a way to do that. Yeah. I would mentioned the part of the process, the, the jury involvement and the jury decision-making. Mm. During jury selection, when you have a capital case, you're questioning jurors, right? What do, you, do you call it death, death qualifying a juror? Death qualifying so, a juror. So you're, you're asking jurors a question as to whether they're willing to impose a death sentence, whether they can do that. Right. Are there ways, I'm not asking you to give any trade secrets <laughs> on yourself, so if, if you say, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, fine. no, we can talk about it. Are there ways that you draw out or you can draw out from potential jurors when you're questioning them in Vordar, whether they're giving you answers about their receptiveness of the death penalty when maybe they want they have ulterior motives getting on a jury to stop the death penalty there's always you always read criticism in the newspaper about juries that returned a, a verdict of of life and and not death do you read jurors or do you have a line of questioning <laughs> that tip you off yeah, you know, it really starts in the questionnaire process because in in death penalty cases, we'll have fairly lengthy questionnaires that the jury has to fill out usually a couple weeks before the trial. And it really starts there. So I'll give you some examples because you're right. I mean, some people who are opposed to the death penalty, when they are questioned in court, they're going to look you in the eye and they're going to say, I, I could impose death in the appropriate case. And you're looking at them going, no, I, don't, I really don't think you can. So we ask questions sort of around that. Now, I'm a big NPR listener. And as a group, I think those of us that listen to NPR are less likely to be in favor of the death penalty. So on the questionnaire, we ask people, well, where do you get most of your news? And People aren't thinking about it when they fill out the questionnaire and they say, well, I get most of my – and I don't, I, I'm not demeaning NPR listeners because I'd listen to it every day. Sure. But people will say, oh, I get most of my news from NPR or PBS as opposed to Fox News. Yes. We ask them what kind of bumper stickers they have. And, you know, bumper stickers oftentimes tell you a lot about the person. And, you know, sometimes it's because they bought the car but it's already right. on there. <laughs> but it gives you an idea in the voir dire process, the, the jury questioning process. Um, you ask them similar questions. I mean, what kind of groups do they belong to? What kind of organizations do they belong to? What's the last book they read? I mean, and all those things. I mean, it's, it's not a science, sure. but all of those things sort of give you clues about whether this person is being candid when they say, I could impose death in a, in a given situation. I, I, think I mean, it's not. 
you know, it's not foolproof, but it gives you some some insight. I think I'd probably be eliminated based on the books that I read. But I remember that process now because I remember the questionnaire and all the questions they asked beforehand. So yeah. now it's all coming back to me, the kind of questions that yeah, were asked. It's designed to sort of get an idea of who you are and what kind of juror you might be, and, and even more so in, in capital cases. Yeah. I read a book by Samuel Walker. He writes a lot of criminal justice books, particularly textbooks. And he wrote a book called Sense and Nonsense about Crime, Drugs, and Communities. And in that book, he wrote about an interesting concept, and he called it the the law of criminal justice thermodynamics. And so it's the more severe a penalty in the criminal justice system, the less often it is applied. And then he wrote about a corollary to that law of thermodynamics, which is the less often a penalty is applied, the more arbitrary it is. Mm. That's the f- one of the first things I thought about when I read your book is I thought back to that book I read by Samuel Walker. So I'm wondering, do you think from your experience that this is somewhat about the severity of the penalty and a resistance that people are developing to applying it because it's so severe? And that in, in turn is leading to it being applied in an arbitrary nature? Well, I think how I would answer that is no one in the system from the prosecution to the jury to the judges to the appellate courts, nobody has in their mind, well, I'm going to be arbitrary on this, right? I mean, everybody wants to do the right thing. Everybody wants to follow the law. They want to apply the facts to that law. But we're all human, and it is a human-run system, and we bring our biases with us. We bring our prejudices with us. We bring, you know, things that we've learned in life with us. And I think that's what makes it arbitrary is that you can't take the human nature out of these decisions. And I think people try the best that they can, but because we're all human, I think that's what makes it arbitrary. I think it leads us to, okay, so if we can criticize the death penalty process and say that it really doesn't do for us what we need it to do, what's the alternative? In most cases, what we're talking about here is if you don't have the death penalty, then you have life without parole. I'm starting to see some research articles, um, I just got a hold of a book that I just started reading. It's called Life Without Parole, America's New Death Penalty, mm-hmm. that appears to make the same arguments that we made about the death penalty as far as it not being a deterrent, as far as it being arbitrary, as far as it not satisfying retribution, except it doesn't have any of the protections that capital punishment has by way of, of appeals. That you get sentenced to life without parole, you might have a, a one or, or two chances And then that's it. And it's being used more and more. I was looking at data the other day, and I was looking at states that typically have a high use of capital punishment, like Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi. And they have high uses of life without parole sentences as as well. And so I wonder, when you have a crime that is just so horrible, if it's not the death penalty and life without parole, the possibility exists that it morphs into this same place as far as the criticisms go. Do we ever get to a place where it's possible to be involved in a horrible homicide and have that person out on the street at some point? So a couple of things about that. One, yeah. I mean, and, and we see that all the time with plea bargaining. I mean, there are plea agreements with defendants who have committed horrible crimes who are going to get out at some point in time. I mean, I had a case involving a triple murder. And after the third trial, we ended up 
pleading the case. The victims just wanted to plead it. They didn't want to go through it again. And it, the Supreme Court had reversed it. There was a hung jury one time. And finally, we we pled it to a term of years. And here's a guy who committed three murders is going to get out uh, when he's still a relatively young man. This concept, though, of attacking natural life is is really not a new phenomenon. It's not a new attack. I recall as you were asking that question, I mean, I, I remember speaking to a group at the ACLU 20 years ago, and it was about, I was speaking to them about the death penalty, and we were talking about at the time that I thought the death penalty at some point in time would be gone in this country. And they were very candid at that point. And this was, this was the early 2000s, 20-some years ago. They said, well, we're already preparing to make the same attack on natural life. So this is, this is not something that's just coming up. This is something that's been around for a long time. And you're right. So where do we go from there? We've had the death penalty in this country for a couple hundred years. Yep. And it's still here. If, in fact, it does go away sometime, the attack on natural life is going to be a long process as well. But there are, there, boy, there are some people that commit such horrendous crimes that they should never see the light of day again. I think our system is always going to have something in place to protect society against those folks. And when you lack those kinds of protections, then you get into an environment where family of the loved ones began to consider taking the law into their own hands and dealing with someone who yeah. is out on the street. I agree. I got to tell you, I mean, I've thought about that many times. I've been concerned about some victims who, when somebody gets paroled, that, you know, they're going to say that justice hasn't been done. And it, it's a concern. Yeah. Well, I have about four questions left, but they are from my students. Great. So I Great. get the privilege of teaching a couple classes at Arizona State University in the fall and the spring semester and talk to my students this semester about you and, and about um, this podcast that we were going to have. And I asked them, if you were in here, what questions would you ask him? And so they gave me some questions. First question they asked is, uh, when did you first realize there were problems in Arizona's death penalty that has led to your criticism of the process? You know, I, I start my book with a case uh, of an execution of a guy that I prosecuted, and the execution was in 2000. And it really started there, and it started me on this path of thinking about, do we need this system? And there it was because the the, there were two defendants, and one of them was, was given the death penalty and executed, and the other one I had to plead out. My evidence was, was not as great. The, the evidence wasn't as compelling against the other defendant, and the other defendant offered to plead straight up to first-degree murder and kidnapping if we dropped the death penalty. And, you know, as a prosecutor, I'm looking at it, what are my chances of going to trial? And so we ended up taking this guy's offer, and he pled to first-degree murder and kidnapping, and the, the second defendant refused, and we offered him the same deal after, after the first one. He refused, went to trial, and got the death penalty. He was eventually executed. And I started thinking, well, how, how fair is that? And subsequent to that case, there were times where if we had multiple defendants, if one defendant didn't get the death penalty when we were seeking it, we withdrew it and the other defendants to, to try to bring some equity to the, the, the final outcome of the case. But, uh, that, that you know, in 2000, I started thinking it obviously took me a lot longer to, to sort of flesh it out into, into this book. But that yeah, started around there. Is the death penalty more arbitrary at the point of prosecution or with the juries who deliberate 
the sentence? Uh, you know, good question. It, it's hard to answer that because, again, you know, there are prosecutors in the state that don't seek the death penalty, mainly mainly in rural counties who don't have the funds to prosecute these cases. They might have just as an egregious a case as I might have, but they don't seek death. And to me, that's an arbitrary decision. And prosecutors, we go out to crime scenes, we get called out to the crime scenes, and we see the aftermath of what's happened here. And there are times when you arrive at this crime scene, you go, oh, my God, this this is a death penalty case. Well, I mean, that's that's arbitrary. You don't know anything about it, yeah. right? Yeah. But it, your mindset starts there, and it, it's somewhat arbitrary. Juries do the best that they can, given the facts and circumstances and the law they're given. And they come from all points of view and all walks of life. And, you know, whether that's arbitrary or whether that's just how our system should be, I would say it starts with the prosecutor, though. You had mentioned this a couple minutes ago with the the plea bargain example. Do you see the death penalty as a valuable bargaining tool to get the defendant to plead guilty to life without parole? So it's sort of that if your client pleads guilty, death comes off the table. Well, I am a firm believer, and I have taught this. I tell prosecutors this, and you'll get prosecutors, very smart, ethical prosecutors who disagree with me. But my opinion is it's unethical to file a death notice simply as plea bargaining leverage. If you're a prosecutor and you're going to seek death, it should be because you've analyzed that case. You think that that's the just punishment. And I don't file one. I never, when I was a prosecutor, I didn't file a death notice with the idea I'm going to seek a plea agreement. If I filed the death notice, I was going to go to trial. But there were times when the defense would come and say, hey, my guy's willing to plead to first degree murder. And then you go... Wow. You know, I mean, if I go to trial, uh, you sit down with the victims. If we go to trial, what's our chance of success? What's going to happen on appeal? So I certainly have accepted offers, but I never filed a death notice and then made a plea offer to uh, as some sort of leverage. I mean, I, uh, to me, that's unethical. But like I said, there are ethical prosecutors who would disagree, disagree with me on that point. Last one from my very good class at ASU. Uh, looking back, on your experience prosecuting death penalty cases and considering how you feel about it now, do you regret or feel guilty about your involvement in capital cases? Uh, that's sort of your your morality question going yeah. back to that. No, I don't regret what I did. And I mean, I, I imagine part of it's sort of a self-defense kind of thing. I mean, I don't want to eat myself up with, sure. with having these regrets. When I look back at the cases where someone got the death penalty, and, you know, we talked about horrendous cases. I mean, these folks committed the worst acts of humanity or lack of humanity that you can imagine. The nature of the murders, the you know, killing children, killing multiple people. I mean, I, I followed the law and I mean, I felt comfortable with presenting the case, following the law and whatever the outcome was that, it, that the jury or before ring, the judge decided I was satisfied with. So, I mean, I, I, I think I just did my job. I, I appreciate that perspective. To me, that's the embodiment of a public servant. You have a job to do and you, you do that job. We at the Criminal Justice Commission, we all have our own personal perspectives and our own personal politics, but we have a job to do and you have to set those aside and you have to do your job, even if it's counter to your own political theology or, or beliefs. Right. If that's the job, you do the job. Right. Well, Rick, it has been an absolute pleasure over the last hour or so talking with you. Very enlightening. Certainly appreciate the uh, opportunity to be educated. 
which you have absolutely done. I hope folks that listen to this find it equally as interesting. Once again, your book is called Arbitrary Death, A Prosecutor's Perspective on the Death Penalty, written by Rick Unclesbay. You can get it at any bookstore. Appreciate your time coming in and talking with us, and your insight has been invaluable to me. Well, it was really a, a pleasure talking to both of you. One thing about the book, if I may add, because um, it's important to me just for people to know this, I don't make any money on this book. All the proceeds go to a nonprofit, Homicide Survivors of Southern Arizona. So I don't want people thinking I'm trying to make some money out of these horrible, horrible stories. So I don't make anything. All the proceeds is that go to a, a nonprofit who deal with um, surviving victims. We at the um, Criminal Justice Commission are very familiar with homicide survivors. I remember, yeah, so. uh, appreciate you uh, doing that and, and much respect to you for, for doing that. So I just want to say thank you also. Really appreciated uh, your insights. And just on a final note, we really appreciate you and all the service that you've provided to Arizona. Well, thank you for having me. This was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Criminal Justice Spotlight Podcast. This has been an Arizona Criminal Justice Commission production. For more information about the Arizona Criminal Justice Commission, visit www.azcjc.gov and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you like this episode and are interested in hearing more, subscribe to Criminal Justice Spotlight on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.